What could have been the motivation to engage in what is literal torture of their children? He probably believes that he's God himself. He wants to be looked up to and feared. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code BESTCASE. That's code BESTCASE. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is another special episode of Worst Case Scenario. This is your host, Francie Hakes, and I am joined way out in LA on the other coast by... Jim Clemente. How you doing, everybody? How you doing, Francie? I'm good, Jim. And Jim and I are on separate coasts today, but we wanted to bring you another episode of Worst Case Scenario to discuss something that's been in the news and all over social media, and that is the depraved, sick case of parents, the Turpins, who, because of the brave actions of a 17-year-old girl, are now being held accountable for what looks like the torture, abuse, and even sexual abuse of some or all of their 13 children out in California. Jim, have you heard about this case? Of course I have. Um I've had many requests to go on CNN and CNN International and other news programs to talk about this. Uh, Unfortunately, I was so busy with other things that I couldn't do that, but I'm glad that we're going to be able to talk about it today in much greater detail than you ever get to when you get on one of these national news programs. I know that when we both heard about it, we were working together down in Florida, and you made a comment that you believed that it wouldn't be long before there will be allegations of sexual victimization of the children involved. And sure enough, very shortly thereafter, there was such allegations. So uh, it just my heart goes out to the children and that family, uh, even though they were ranging in age from very young to 29 years of age, um, they were still the children of these horrific parents the Turpins, and they were victimized by the very people who were on this planet to protect them. I know, Jim. It's it's a shocking case. I mean, I know we say that sort of thing all the time, and it is amazing if you think about it that either one of us can still be shocked by um, man's inhumanity to man, if you will, but I never cease to be amazed by the horror that especially parents 
will visit upon their own children. And here it looks very clear that this kind of abuse had been going on for years. And I really dare I say, Jim, have to call this torture. I mean, when this 17-year-old girl literally escaped this hellhole that was her existence to ask for help and law enforcement came to help, they found at least three of the children literally chained to their beds. Reportedly, these children were kept in separate rooms. They were only allowed to shower once a year. Uh, They didn't go to school, except for one of them who attended a few classes here and there. There's even really sad reports of one of the little girls when she was in what would have been the third grade, was teased and bullied for coming to school in dirty clothes and being smelly. And I don't know where the teachers were or counselors or people who maybe could have intervened at that point and whether there could have been a discovery of her home life. But this is a this is a horror show. And now we hear this week that these children, at least the ones who are still minors, may very well be separated when they are eventually released from medical care and gone to separate and sent to separate foster homes. That troubles me, Jim. What do you think? Well, first of all, you're raising so many issues, so we have to go back, okay? (laughs) But yes, I don't know why one young girl was allowed to go to third grade. And when she was there, she showed up in the same exact clothes every day. And sometimes they were described as looking like they were dragged through the mud. And she had uh, a scrunchie apparently made out of a used candy bar wrapper. And the teacher told her to take it off or something. And, and I don't know, it caused this whole thing, but she was laughed at and bullied. They said she smelled like feces. Look, I don't give a damn who you are. If you're a teacher and there's a child that comes in smelling like feces every day, you damn look into it. You don't just say, oh, that's weird. Oh, you know, whatever. I mean, come on. That's that's a basic hygiene thing. And clearly this child, I didn't know that they weren't allowed to shower but once a year, but that's why they would smell like that. And good Lord, you do something about it if you're a teacher. And then the fact is that the rest of the children were supposedly, quote, homeschooled. And that's an issue. This is an example of why there has to be sort of, I don't know, some, you have to institute some kind of protections for kids who are homeschooled because generally this is, school is the place where a lot of uh, abuses that are going on at home actually come to the surface because kids come into school and they're bruised or they're unkempt or they're starved or they're not well cared for. And sometimes everything is cared for, but They make inadvertent disclosures or deliberate disclosures to guidance counselors or teachers or our fellow classmates. And when you're homeschooled, you don't have that as an outlet. And I think there needs to be some way for Department of Public Welfare or Department of Education to check in from time to time on children who don't have access to, you know, the public schools or the private schools. You're so right, Jim. And this reminds me of that other case recently where after the young woman was rescued from what had been at least a decade of captivity, the neighbors were asked questions. Why didn't you notice? How could you not see 
what was happening. And some of those neighbors, both from when the Turpins lived in Texas and from California, all reported something not right. They understood that something was happening there. It was odd. They'd see the lights on all night long. They'd see the children kneeling in the front yard. There were all sorts of opportunities for some kind of law enforcement or child protective services intervention, and it never happened here. And I think that's one of the worst lessons to me of all of this in light of all the other horrible cases out there, the horrible things that have come to light, the abuses by Jerry Sandusky, the things that have been missed in case after case after case, still people are ignoring children who need help. Right. And one other example was that one of the boys was somehow allowed to go to, I think, a local community college. And one of the teachers commented that, yeah, I remember one day when we had sort of a, a buffet um, that he did not even sit down. He stood at the buffet table filling plate after plate and just scarfing it down. He was emaciated and he was famished. Yet that didn't ring any alarm bells for that teacher. Why didn't they look into it? They said he was always emaciated, that he always came into class wearing the same clothes and that he never made eye contact with anybody. Well, clearly that kid has problems. Why wasn't somebody there to help him? Why didn't they reach out to him? You know, this thing, this whole thing about, well, I'm not going to get involved. You know, it's kind of embarrassing to get involved or, you know, who knows? Maybe it's nothing. Well, maybe it's something. And why not ask? I mean, it's it's just terrible. And there are so many people who had all these little pieces of information. If they had gotten together and shared that information, everybody would know. But in, in the event that that's not going to happen, sharing it with law enforcement, sharing it with Child Protective Services, then they would know. And then they could do something about it. It was something that could have been prevented. If anyone, teacher, another parent... A, a, a friend, a neighbor, if someone had stepped forward and reported that something was wrong, there's every chance there could have been intervention long before now. From what I've read this week, Jim, tragically, many of these children, some of the young adults are developmentally disabled. Some of them have had their growth stunted because they're so malnourished. I mean, we're living in the United States of America and these children are malnourished and chained up and abused. And what I want to ask you is about the behavioral aspects of this. What makes parents do something like this? What could have been the motivation to engage in what is literal torture of their children? Well, I, I would like to talk about that. And, and you're right. I believe that they went further with this torture. It was psychological torture as well they actually would go out and grocery shop and the parents would eat the food. They would not feed their children. They would feed their dogs and not feed the children. They would buy pies and cakes and candy and put it on the counter and the kids would look at it, but they were not allowed to eat it. To me, that is psychological torture. They must have been starving for years, for decades, some of them. It's such a horrible thing. So why would they do it? I believe we have a combination here of sort of a cult-like scenario where the father probably 
isolated the mother and her children. And he basically led this sort of community that he created for his own ego. And clearly, he was sadistic. And I believe the mother must have either been sadistic herself or gone along with the program that the father initiated. And I think that eventually she became just as culpable as the father. It's a horrible thing. Her sister said that for 20 years she'd been trying to see and and meet the, the her nieces and nephews, and she was prevented. She wouldn't even let her go on Skype and see them. And she had lived with the family for a short time, a few months while she was in school. And she said she didn't see any overt signs of abuse. She said that the kids were all skinny. And the mother joked, well, you know, their father is tall and lanky, so they're just taken after him. And she would laugh it off. But there's there's some serious sadism going on here. You can't put kids through that. You can't put the people that you are supposed to be protecting through that kind of torture and pain and suffering and neglect and abuse without being sadistic. These are helpless children who are being brought into the world by their parents who literally do not give a damn about them at all. I myself am an aunt. I have 12 nieces and nephews. And I promise you, if their parents were keeping them from me, if I didn't see them, talk to them, text with them, FaceTime with them on a regular basis, I can promise I would have been calling Child Protective Services or law enforcement to do what law enforcement calls a welfare check. I do not understand a family member who says, for 20 years, I asked to see my nieces and nephews, but they wouldn't let me, and then who doesn't take that next step. I don't care if it's your own family. I don't care if it's your spouse. Someone needs to speak for these children. And I think that's the thing that really hurts my heart in all this, Jim, is no one spoke for these children. It's so hard to sit and imagine the agony, the shame, the, the torture, the hunger, the abuse that they endured every day of their lives. And no one intervened. No one spoke for them. No one rescued them. Right. Until finally the 17-year-old girl had the courage, the incredible bravery to act like, you know, a Navy SEAL, for God's sake, and sneak out of her house and get help for her and her siblings. And I say, God bless that child. I, I mean, the, the nerve, the sheer daring, uh, the absolute heroics of her action cannot be emphasized enough here. And what's amazing, Francie, you may not know this, but most of the children did not even know what a police officer was, did not even know what 911 was. Some people say, well, why didn't the 29-year-old call the police? How could this person be going to college and not rat out their parents? How could this, you know, as if, I mean, they're victim blaming blatantly, but you don't know what the situation was. These kids had been groomed and, and tortured since birth. And therefore, just for self-preservation and for the preservation of their siblings, they were probably just 
in fear that horrible things would happen. I mean, if some of them are being chained to their beds, it's probably because they weren't towing the line. And the other children would see that this is what happens when you don't do what the parents tell them to do. It's a very, very bizarre situation, but it does, it creates mind control and, and they're physically and developmentally delayed. It's, it's not a usual set of circumstances. You can't give them grief for not coming forward. And the fact that one girl did, that she knew enough how to call 911, that she knew enough that there was a 911 because they were isolated completely from real society. Well, it's shocking to me that anyone would blame any of these children. It's actually a little bit similar to a case I had, Jim, where a father had been severely sexually abusing his daughter from the time she was five to the time the FBI arrived at her door when she was nine to put a stop to it because he was abusing her and putting it on the internet. He was eventually caught. And when the child was interviewed, one of her first questions was, When's daddy coming home? It was very clear that she did not know that what was happening to her was wrong. That was her life. That was how her father treated her and interacted with her. That's what she thought love was. It would have never occurred to her to tell anyone because she assumed that that's everyone's life. And that's these kids. That was their whole life. Their whole life was being chained and or separated and tortured. And of course they don't know to get out of it. It is a miracle that that 17-year-old knew enough to know something was wrong and to go for help. And the 17-year-old looked like a 10-year-old. And just so people know, instead of being sort of in the senior year in high school, she would have looked like a fifth grader. And that's amazingly difficult to do to a human being to keep them that small they must not have gotten adequate sleep or food during their entire childhood for that to happen and it's such a terrible thing and that's another aspect of torture it's uh, it's just unbelievable that the parents could do that to their own children it is unbelievable and i think that's part of the problem here jim and why neighbors don't call, as we call it here in Georgia, defects or child protective services or the sheriff's officer or the police or anyone, because it's very difficult for the normal people out there to imagine that this depravity exists. And that's what it was, depravity, to visit this kind of abuse and torture on people that you have ultimate responsibility for their health and safety and welfare is depravity. And there's no other way to describe it. And I'm happy to see a couple of things have happened in the criminal side this week, Jim. And that is, of course, the mother and father are being investigated, prosecuted. They're being held in prison. They have a very high bond. All of that is appropriate, but most appropriate this week was word that the judge has granted a kind of restraining order so that the parents may not contact those children except through their defense attorneys when it comes time to 
prepare a defense in the case. What their defense is going to be, Jim, I'd really like to see. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Why did the defense attorneys get access to the victims? That's bullshit. Why is that happening? That's what the judge has said. When it's time to prepare their case, the defense attorneys are going to be allowed to contact these children to try to establish some kind of defense, I guess. I mean, what's their defense? We only tortured them a little? No, but why do they have to have contact with the children to prepare their defense? Normally, they don't get that. Defense attorneys don't get access to the victims. I mean, that's outrageous. No, they shouldn't. And so I I hope that what happens in this case, legally speaking, is that these disgusting, depraved human beings, excuses for human beings, end up pleading guilty for what they did. But you know what, Jim? I think that people who can do this to their own flesh and blood, I'll be shocked if they plead guilty. What do you think? Well, I don't believe they're looking at what they did as wrong. I believe that they've rationalized their own behavior. He probably believes that he's God himself. He wants to be looked up to and feared. And and so he created all these kids and so that they could be subjugated to him. And he has access, authority, and control over them. I believe he was likely sexually victimizing them. It's just, it's a horrible situation. I do not believe he's the kind of person that's going to plead guilty. I believe he's the kind of person that's going to, you know, believe that he wants the grandstanding opportunity of a trial. And I believe that he's the kind of person that would much prefer getting up and testifying than just sort of pleading and getting thrown in in a cage for the rest of his life. Well, let's talk a little bit about a criminal investigation here, Jim. I think it's one of the most difficult things in a case like this. And we had, if you remember, uh, Georgia's own Joanne Sutherland on not too long ago, who talked about how time slows down uh, when there's a horrific event. And she responds to a scene with what's obviously been some kind of horrific abuse of, of a child left bound on a porch And she's thinking two different things. First, she's thinking, I have to make sure this child is okay. But secondly, as a trained law enforcement officer, she's thinking, but I also need to preserve evidence. And I wonder, because I haven't heard anything about it here, I wonder what happened when the law enforcement officers first arrived on the scene? Were they able to document the injuries, the the bondage going on with some of those children? Did they photograph the situation? Or was there first an understandable priority getting the children out of there and getting them clean and fed? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure. I know all the children, whether they were still under 18 or adults, were all brought to hospitals and they spent some significant amount of time there. Uh, they were obviously in really bad shape and needed to be, you know, fed and cared for. So I think there might have been an exigency that would have gotten them out of there. And and maybe the, the cops, you know, took them out and, you know, got EMTs in there to take care of them before they started documenting it. But hopefully there was still enough to document it. And hopefully... There's going to be a number of these kids who are articulate enough and strong enough to give very good and convincing and detailed statements about what was going on. 
And hopefully that will be enough to convict these assholes. Well, I certainly hope so too, Jim. I can't help but thinking with my prosecutor's brain, though, that it, it's one of those ir- horrible ironies. Uh, the abuse may be so severe that the children cannot disclose what has happened to them. And if that's the case, I certainly hope not. But if that's the case, I hope that the evidence technicians and the investigators running this investigation have been able to appropriately document this abuse and the house of horrors that it sounds like this was. And I just wonder, Jim, as a profiler, what your thoughts are on interview strategies for these kinds of people, especially for the father, who I think it sounds like you're right, must have had a God or a cult complex. I believe that it would be imprudent to talk about interview strategies because this will go out over the air and defense attorneys and the offenders themselves could potentially hear it. So I'd rather not do that because I don't want to get in the way of law enforcement because this is an ongoing investigation. But after it's over, I'll be happy to talk about those things. Well, instead of talking about interview strategy then, Jim, how about talking about what you expect someone like that father would say? Do you think he would admit any wrongdoing? I think that people like this father and mother have a tendency to rationalize their behavior. They will say that they were disciplining their children, that they we live in a harsh world and they are actually protecting their children. They'll do all sorts of things so that in their own minds, they feel like they're justified in treating their children the way they did. The fact that they bought them out in public, the fact that they did semi-elaborate remarriage ceremony, the fact that they dressed all of them exactly the same. Uh, There's a very disturbing photograph where every one of the children has a red shirt on and one says thing one, thing two, through thing 13. The fact that they refer to their children as things, all these things tell me that this is a couple that is actually celebrating the damage they're causing to their children. This is not a couple who's going to show remorse. There's a possibility you might be able to get the mother to testify against the father. Um, But I don't think that prosecutors are going to want to give the mother a break at all. And, you know, in order to get her cooperation. So I think in the end, they're both going to be prosecuted. And my prediction is that they'll go to trial And we will see one or both of them take the stand to justify their behavior. I agree with you, Jim. And I think it's actually going to be even worse than that. I I think you're right that they will justify their behavior. And my guess is we may very well see start to leak out from the defense team some kind of victim blaming, which, as our listeners know, absolutely enrages, well, both of us, but absolutely enrages me and I suspect that these parents will say, oh, well, they didn't want to take a shower. Oh, well, they didn't want to eat. They were they refused our very reasonable discipline and they refused to go to school and they refused to cooperate or socialize. I really think that it won't be long before we start to hear victim blaming happen here. Yeah. And I think it's going to go further, Francie. I think you're going to see the parents saying, you know, these children were unruly. They wanted to get involved in drugs or alcohol. They were 
engaging in sexual activity and, you know, we had to punish them. Uh, it was our God-given right and duty to punish them. I think you're going to get that kind of justification. And again, I think it boils down to self-centered, narcissistic, sadistic, cult-like behavior. There's no doubt. I think it's a very complex case. I want, again, to send my incredible admiration and tribute to the 17-year-old girl who was brave enough to rescue her entire family from this house of horror that they were living in. And I hope that they are all now on the path to recovery. I hope they can overcome this absolute torture that they endured for much of their life and enjoy the things that life really does have to offer. Well, I agree with you totally, Francie. And I believe that that 17-year-old girl is a hero as well as her brothers and sisters who survived. And I do have a lot of hope that even though they may be separated as siblings, that they will be able to go on and have a great life. But I'd also like to reach out to all of our listeners across the U.S. and around the world and tell them this case should be a cautionary tale. Seeing something that makes you feel like a child is being abused or is at risk or in danger and not doing something about it is not a good thing. And what we should try to do as people, as communities across this world is if you see something, say something. There are many cases like the Dugard case and like the Kansas City case where girls were kept in captivity for many years, but they were seen every now and then and people just didn't do anything about it. I would encourage you to be vigilant. And I'm not talking about, you know, ratting out neighbors for not cutting their grass or not painting their fence. I'm talking about not caring for their children. And if you all of a sudden see a kid disappear where they're no longer in public, if you see a kid who is infrequently in public, but when they are, something looks wrong, say something about it. If it isn't anything, then a quick investigation will be able to uncover that. But if it is something, you could actually be responsible for rescuing a child. You could actually be a hero. That's right, Jim. Great sentiment. And I think I'll add just three words to our listeners. Don't look away. Unfortunately, I think that's what's happening too often. But our listeners are now armed with lots of knowledge from uh, your experience and my experience. And hopefully these cases will never happen again. I can cross my fingers and hope, right, Jim? That's right. Hopefully. But thank you for calling in, even though I know, Jim, you're a little bit under the weather. Thanks to our listeners for all of your participation on Twitter and Facebook. Please keep it up. Please write us. We love hearing from you what you think of the podcast, what you think about the cases that we're discussing. And some of you are even sending in your ideas for other guests that you'd like us to interview. So please continue to do that. Jim and I love hearing from you. That's right. We really appreciate all your comments and feedback, and we do our best to listen to them and appropriately decide what we're going to do for the next episodes. So 
keep those comments coming. And that's it for us on this special edition of Best Case, Worst Case, Worst Case Scenario. We're now signing off. Thank you for listening. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios, L.A. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba. And hosted by Wonder. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Knowledge is power, and when we know the facts about sexual abuse, we can better protect kids. Darkness to Light has already trained more than 1.4 million adults to keep children safe from sexual abuse. I'm one of those 1.4 million, Jim. Using their Stewards of Children Prevention Training, they give you and gave me the facts, tools, and tips I needed to help keep the kids I love safe. And you can do the same with their Stewards of Children Prevention Training. Get trained today to prevent, recognize, and react responsibly to child abuse in your community. Learn more about Darkness to Light and child sexual abuse prevention at www.d2l.org. That's D, the numeral 2, L.org. Oh, yeah.